Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Michael Anton. He is lecturer and senior fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at Claremont Institute. He is a former national security official in the Trump administration. He was with us last year to discuss his book after the Flight 93 election, and he's with us now to discuss a new book, the Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Welcome, Michael. Hi, thank you. Okay, well, you begin by asserting the fact in, in, the, in the very opening pages that every election from November, November onward, national election at least, is going to be something of a do-or-die thing until uh, the left in America moderates itself or is forced I think I, I, to moderate. I think or hope I say until and unless, because I'm not convinced they're going to do that. Right, right. right. So that would be uh, a necessary, but also not sufficient condition. Yeah, yeah right. And, and because what, what they want is they want fundamental change. They don't want policy reform. They don't want incremental anything. What does the left in 2020, this year right now, what does the left want to do? Permanent unopposed power. That's what they want. They want to take over. They think Republicans are illegitimate. Conservative ideas are illegitimate. Conservative people are racist and evil. And uh, America is racist to the core. And the only just regime is giving, every, is giving all power to them without opposition. And paradoxically, they call that democracy. Democracy has been progressively redefined to mean an outcome, the outcome that they hold to be correct, and not a democratic process. So they're talking, I mean, when I wrote that preface, I, I, that wasn't that long ago, a couple of months ago, how naive it sounds now when they're openly saying, we're just not going to accept another Donald Trump win. It doesn't really matter what the, how, how the process goes down. We're going to say it's illegitimate, and we're going to make sure the Democrats take over power uh, one way or the other. So, you know, in, 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 a, in a sense, um, maybe this is the last Flight 93 election because there might not be elections after this. This one might not even be a real election if they get what some of them have been talking about, if they get their way and Trump actually wins and then they drag it out, litigate it in the courts, fill the streets and effectively mount what's been termed a color revolution, which is what they're talking about openly and plotting right now. You know, you, uh, uh, you've written about something in the past. It was, it was a piece, I think, at Claremont, but I've heard, I've actually 
talking with, with liberals uh, lately, and uh, several of them have said that what you're talking about is actually what they fear from Trump and his followers, that he, he's taking power. And you called, it, you called this earlier just another specimen of projection. Exactly. Uh, the, to me, the wisest thing, and one can never quote this line often enough in 2020, it, Tucker Carlson sums up almost every night on his show the Freudian concept of projection in, a, in very few words. Uh, whatever they accuse you of doing, they're doing, right? So if they say Trump wants to seize power illegitimately, it means they want to, and they're planning it. I've seen no sign whatsoever that Trump can seize, is, is intending to seize power. But also, fundamentally, right, for Trump to be a dictator, it would mean that all these forces nominally under his command would have to obey orders. Have, have, has the last three and a half years seemed to you like Trump exercising an iron grip on the federal bureaucracy and federal agencies who immediately leap to attention and implement everything he says? Or has it seemed to you like nothing but mass resistance and skullduggery and attempts to undermine his agenda from within? I don't know about you, but to me, it looks like the latter. So even if Trump were some kind of would-be, wannabe dictator, if that's really what was in his heart, which I don't for a moment believe, right? I see no possibility that he could implement his program and stay in power because I don't think any part of the federal government would say, yeah, yeah, we're going along with this guy. Even We're going to go along with this guy as he un, uh, illegally and unconstitutionally usurps power. There's no way. There's, they don't even follow his orders when he gives them lawful constitutional orders. <laughs> an, an, an academic, very intelligent woman said to me, a friend of mine said to me the other day that she, she's very dismayed. She does believe that Trump, he's going to lose, but that the generals are going to have to bring him out of the White House by force. He will not leave. Now, where does this, where does this imagining come from? I think amongst, it comes from two places. From the cynical but wiser, it is a preparation in the public mind to say, look, we fear Trump is going to, this is their, their unspoken premise is we fear Trump is going to win. Since we cannot accept that, we have to find a way to get him out of there. In getting him out of there, we have to make it look like it was his fault. It can't be, you know, openly, well, yeah, he won, but we're just getting rid of him because we hate him. It has to be, no, 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 ladies and gentlemen, he really lost and he's illegitimately trying to say, so when you see these forces dragging him out of there, please understand that's not us doing it to him. That's him doing it to himself because he can't accept his loss. Right. And then so those are the those are the, the, the self-aware people who know what they're doing. And then I think more many more people are the people on whom that message is intended to work, whom it is intended to influence. And they convince themselves that, yeah, oh, no, you know, Trump can't possibly win. Therefore, you know, if, if it looks like he won, he's cheating and oh, he'll have to be dragged out of there now. I'm working on a new piece that I, I haven't finished. I've just been so busy running around like crazy, and I never have time to sit down in any kind of uninterrupted block and, and write. But if, if the Democrats if, and, and the left were interested in democracy and in political stability and all of these kinds of things and in respecting the integrity of the process, they would be psychologically preparing their voters for a potential loss, right? They would be saying something like, look, we don't know how this is going to turn out, but you shouldn't be shocked if Trump wins, after all, he has a committed and motivated and energized base, 
right? It's not like the guy's got a terrible yeah, – yes, he's, he's been mostly underwater uh, in a popularity or an approval rating, but so is Barack Obama at, 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 you know, at, at similar stages in his presidency. So with George W. Bush, they both won re-election. So Trump has an energized base. Before the COVID shutdown, he had a great economy. And for the first time in decades, you remember Ronald Reagan's famous debate question, which he asked not of Jimmy Carter, but to the American people, are you better off than you were four years ago? In February of 2020, most Americans could say, I am better off than I was three years ago or four years ago. The economy had gotten better. The labor market had tightened. Wages had risen. Um, all kinds of manufacturing you know, had returned home. Lots of things had changed for the better. So that's another reason to think he, you know, he could win this election. And also, he's kept most of, certainly many, of the promises that he made. And finally, it's, you know, Democrats, I don't think, can accept the fact that maybe the woke riots were not a good idea for them. Maybe they turned off a lot of people in the middle, independents, suburban voters, and stuff like that. So these are some serious reasons why Trump could win this election. And if I were a statesmanlike person in the Democratic Party, I would be preparing my electorate for that possibility so that they don't have another mass psychosis, psychological breakdown. Right. And you, you've, instead, you've got the Democrat. They're saying things like, vote like your life depends on it, because it does. They're pumping out polls that show Biden with these preposterous 15-point leads and stuff like that, right? Nobody believes that. Well, or actually, probably a lot of Democratic believers do, but nobody serious believes that. But they want to get in the public mind. This is a shoe-in. Biden can't lose. If Trump wins, it'll be illegitimate. It'll mean he cheated. Therefore, they're telling their voters in advance, do not accept the outcome of this election. Don't accept the outcome of this election. And then when they don't, everyone's going to say it's Trump's fault. So this is a psychological operation that is, and then they accuse Trump and his supporters of betraying democracy, of threatening democracy. They're the ones that are threatening democracy and betraying democracy. What, what is the right course for Republican Party leaders to take in, in response to this? I think first is just call it out. Call it for what it is. Republicans are always timid when it comes to this kind of thing, much too timid. They need to get much more direct and forthright and say, this is a scandal that elected officials at this level, former presidential candidates, um, are, are talking openly about not accepting the results of an election and using the military to influence an outcome of the election. It's a disgrace and they should be called out on it uh, continually. I think they also need to be, and this is really on the president more than anybody else in his team, they need to be preparing for alternative means to communicate with the American people. I really do believe, maybe believe is too strong a word, but I strongly suspect or fear that the night of November 3rd, Twitter, Facebook, and everybody on all the social media sites are going to shut off the president's accounts because they're going to say, oh, he's losing and he won't accept defeat and therefore he's illegitimate and we're not going to let him, quote, usurp our democracy, unquote. And so we're locking him out of these accounts and not letting him communicate with the American people. I hope he's prepared for that and is ready to find alternative means to communicate. Okay. The book, the book. You, you have a long section on California, you're a native Californian. I'm a native Californian. Went to, we went to school out there. You you call California the future of America. What what is what is the truth? Give us some of the prominent characteristics of California today that look like it could be a, a very dark future for the rest of the country. Well, it's a one-party state where there's no effective opposition. There's still millions of Californians who are not Democrats, who are independents or Republicans, who are 
you know, rural types, religious types, conservative types, libertarians, and so on. But they have no voice. They can vote all they want. Their votes don't matter. They just get overwhelmed by the, popula- the blue population centers on the coast who send you know, very far-left Democrat liberals to Sacramento, leftist uh, legislators to Sacramento, and who govern according to whatever is the latest enthusiasm of woke left ideology. And sometimes it just results in frivolity and pointlessness, but it sometimes results in, in, in real harm. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're a blue state, or if you're a red person in a rural county in California that, you know, is in agriculture, relies on water or this or that, you will be subjected to all kinds of punishing environmental and other regulations from Sacramento, but not really from Sacramento. It's from legislators who live in San Francisco and Santa Monica and so on, who who never, ever have to suffer the consequences of the regulations they impose on the rest of the state. So one party rule is the defining feature. I think the second defining feature is really grotesque and growing inequality, where the top uh, uh, rungs of socioeconomic ladder in California just get richer and more powerful by the day. And the middle class gets bled out and either just drops out of the middle class or flees the state. And, and then you have a kind of rolling churn of self-replacing the, the bottom rung, right? Somebody, so, so if, you, uh, if you're very poor and coming from a very poor country, either the poorer parts of Mexico or uh, Central America, poor and dangerous, California seems like paradise to you even as it is now because poverty in California is a lot more bearable, almost comfortable by comparison to what one experiences in, you know, in these parts of Central America. Um, but a generation will go by, generations go by, and those, the, you know, there's no more, there's not really much more of a, of a path upward in California anymore for these recent immigrants. And the rapaciousness of the business class in California, combined with the in, in, inaction of the federal government, at least before Trump, combined with the insistence of the woke class in California that uh, determines what is acceptable opinion and what isn't, right? Those all combine together to keep the border open and keep the flow never ending. So keep the, and which keeps wages down and retards assimilation and retards upward mobility. So California really is a society that's built only for two classes of people. One is the, the very, very wealthy elites, um, maybe three classes of people. I, actually, I divide it up into, I think, seven <laughs> at the end of that chapter, but I'll simplify for now. There's the sort of the very wealthy elites and those who serve them on the upper half and the very poor recent immigrants who work for the wealthy elites. And, the, and California, in a sense, works for them. But it doesn't work for their children and grandchildren, and it doesn't work for anybody else. In fact, it actively hectors, taxes, punishes, regulates, and smothers its middle class to the point where people just give up. I mean, the only people left in the California middle class essentially are people who ancestors have been there a long time. Maybe they uh, inherited a house. Maybe they inherited their Prop 13 assessment, so they're paying low property taxes. They're just anchored to the place and so don't want to leave. I know people in that circumstance. But I've also known a lot of, you know, a lot of friends of mine over the years have, have just gotten, they've gone because they just say there, there's, it doesn't feel like home anymore. And whatever benefit I used to get from living here is vastly outweighed by all of the, the, uh, of the detractions. Well, one thing I want to say is that in your portrait of California, it's a long, very rich portrait. You actually go back into the past and talk about how great California was in the mid 20th century up through the through the 70s even you've got a great section on the old tv show the brady bunch what, what why do you go back to the brady bunch what does that show 
Well, for, first of all, everybody knows it, right? It's, it, it's, even though I guess it, didn't, it never cracked into the top 10 when it was on the air because of syndication and everything, uh, everybody knows what it is. They know the show. They know the characters, Marsha, 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 and all of this stuff, right? What they don't really know is that, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a meant to be a typical situation comedy about a rather typical American family. It wasn't. It, it, here's what people don't really remember is that it was set in California, in in the city of Los Angeles. Now they never. It, it wasn't like one of those TV shows where the setting becomes part of the show in a real way. You know, like where if you're set in New York, they're always doing New York things and showing you New York streetscapes, right? Basically, the places you saw in the Brady Bunch were this house and the schoolyard and the you know and that. And they didn't make much of it. But the fact that at that time they could depict a, a nuclear family, two parents. Now, granted, it was a blended family. You know, there was, you know, he had three boys of his own and so on. Everybody knows the premise of the show. But six kids, one income in a suburban detached house in L.A., the city of L.A., in the L.A. Unified School District. And they could send all those kids to the schools and the schools were fine and safe. And, you know, that's impossible to imagine in California today. Absolutely impossible. Even a two earner family. First of all, they'd never have six kids. But even a two earner family would have no shot at affording a house anywhere near, which was a fairly modest, you know, bland. I mean, it wasn't a particularly great house. And in fact, of those six kids shared two bedrooms. So there were three and three. It wasn't like today where everybody has to have a bedroom and house, you know, but those people would have no chance of affording that today. And it just shows you how when that show was on the air, it was not only uncontroversial, it was not even remarked on. People just took for granted that, oh yeah, this is the way uh, uh, Americans live and the way Californians live. Well, nowadays to live like that, in a similar style house, you essentially have to be upper management at a tech firm or at a Hollywood studio or maybe, or maybe a famous actor. Otherwise, you can't afford it. You know, one thing, when you turn to what happened over the decades, uh, one thing you say is that in portions of California, at least, we are reaching, quote, taxi driver, that old Scorsese movie, taxi driver levels of disorder on the streets. What, what kind of disorder is going on? Well, the two, probably the two worst neighborhoods in the United States of America are in California. That is, they were before the woke riots, and who knows what the woke riots will do to various American cities, which are probably plunging back into chaos as we speak. But let's just take a time capsule and go back to May 24th, 2020. The worst two neighborhoods in America at that moment were the Tenderloin in San Francisco and Skid Row in downtown L.A. And... Um, They've got sort of every kind of pathology you can possibly imagine, including diseases that are so, this is a line I got from Tom Wolfe, but it's a good one. That's a great quote that you bring in, yes. Diseases that are so old, they don't even have Latin names (laughs) because they had been wiped out by basic ordinary hygiene in the Middle Ages and then popped back up first in the 60s. uh, And then, you know, when the 60s enthusiasm kind of rolled away. But now, you know, doctors are talking about treating bubonic plague in LA to the extent that it gets treated. The rat populations have exploded. The needles are everywhere. Drug use is rampant. And of course, this has been much written about human feces on streets, on streets that levels not seen in the United States hitherto. And there's no political will to do anything about it. The mayors either deny that it's mayors and governors either deny that it's happening. They attack those who bring it up as being, you know, not representing, that's not who we are. Those are not our values. We're inclusive. How dare you try to criminalize homelessness and so on and so forth. And 
you know, I've seen anecdotal and other evidence that, that people are leaving San Francisco and L.A. for these reasons. But then again, a lot of people uh, who live there are live there by choice. They came from somewhere else precisely to be in the wokest part of the country they can be in because they're so, you know, they're so bummed out by the benighted bourgeois values of middle America. Um, but now I'm also seeing, and this is a bit disturbing, I, mean, I think I'm going to write a piece about this when I find the time, working title, Blue Locusts, where people come in and they completely insist on every insane progressive policy imaginable. It's all enacted. It destroys the city. They go, oh my God, quality of life is plunged through the floor. I can't live here anymore. They pack up and they go to some new place in a red state and then they destroy it and then they move on again. Right, right. Well, I just read, I read some anecdotal thing this morning that a friend linked and sent to me. It's about all these San Franciscans who have moved to, uh, to Salt Lake City. I mean, can you imagine a place more different in ethos or character or, you know, aesthetic affect than Salt Lake City? But the San Franciscans are there and they're talking about how great it is that they've formed their new little blue enclave in Salt Lake City. And one of them was saying, oh, I just bumped into two friends this morning. It's just like I'm back home on Valencia Street. Well, what are you doing there? Are you just going to try to trash that place too? And then where? And to, once you've trashed every city in the United States, where do you go next? You know, you know, California used to be the vanguard of individuality and do your own thing and free spirits. Now it's a place of, you say, quote, stultifying conformity. And what you mentioned a moment ago is the way in which the authorities are really enforcing uh, a form of conformity. Now, do you think the seed of conformity was always there in the liberation fantasies of the 60s or did it come after that is a good question. You know, based on my reading of, say, you know, Wolf's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which still remains the best book on, on, on the counterculture. Great the book. Great I book. mean, there's really two. The twin poles of the 60s are the hippies and the counterculture on the one hand and the hard-edged new left on the other. And the two books to read to understand these things, Acid Test is number one. That gets you the hippies and the counterculture. And the other one is uh, Destructive Generation by David Horowitz and Peter Collier which is um, the best, by far, the best account of the new left uh, I've ever seen. The stultifying conformity comes more from the latter than from the former, right? If Ken Kesey and his gang had won the intra-left war, and they won certain aspects of it, lifestyle aspects and things like that, I think everything would be much more free and easy. Than, but but um, the new left ended up winning that intra-left culture war in the form of political correctness, wokeness, ideological mandates, speech codes, you know, uh, the conformity that they imposed on the universities and things like that. And it's important to note, too, that the stultifying conformity in California today, yes, it does come from the government and it comes from government mandates and it comes from the universities and what they push and tolerate and will not tolerate. But it also comes increasingly from private companies. These silica, especially these tech behemoths are like cults. They allow only one set of opinions and no others, and they will, you will get, basically get fired if you, if you dissent in any way. You have to kind of go in there and get it. It's, 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 like, being, it's like being in a cult or something like in, in a government institution in Orwell's 1984, except it's a private company. Uh, you read the descriptions of what it's like to work in these places, and it's horrifying. You have another a, a related term to describe California. You call it pathological altruism. What makes California altruism a pathology? Because it will, it will be uh, altruistic. It will try to extend an open arm and an open hand, even when, it's even when it's in the process of destroying itself. So, you know, California has the, uh, 
Depends on how you count. Anywhere from, if I have this correctly, I, I, I shows you how, I don't remember every detail I cited in the book, but something like anywhere between one third and one half of all welfare recipients in the United States. It's a welfare magnet for two reasons. One, well, three, three, let's say. Welfare slash homeless magnet for three reasons. One is the weather's good and it's easier to be on welfare and homeless in, uh, in, in 72 degree no humidity than it is in blazing heat and, and or knee deep snow. Um, the second is, there are these liberal places where they simply will not at all uh, maintain public order. So if you want to sleep on the street and live on the street and pee on the street and do whatever you want on the street, why not go to Santa Monica or Berkeley, California, where you know you will not get hassled by any kind of authority whatsoever. And the third is an extremely generous uh, spate of state-level welfare benefits and spending, including very lavish spending on so-called homelessness. All of these three things combined make the state very attractive to welfare recipients and would-be homeless people and who make the state dirtier, more expensive, more crowded. They put pressure on state budgets, and the state will not stop with this generosity. Um, pathological altruism is the state's passionate opposition to doing anything about illegal immigration, which not long ago wasn't true. I remember, it was in 1994, the state voters passed 60-40, uh, an initiative, ballot initiative saying no welfare for illegal aliens. Now, it was immediately entombed in the courts because the courts really rule in modern America. You, you, you have a nice term for that, critarchy. Yeah, which I did not coin. I mean, that's, that's not mine, but it's, not, it's apt, I think. And to, but maybe the ultimate example of pathological altruism is the, is the shooting death of a, of a young woman uh, at Pier 39 on the San Francisco Embarcadero named Kate Steinel by an, uh, an illegal immigrant who had been deported something like five times and committed, a, I don't know how many crimes. He, he literally killed this woman with a handgun, was arrested, eventually had all charges but one dropped against him. I mean, it was like, and it's some minor gun charge or something like that. And Catholic, you know, Donald Trump brought this up, this case, just to show how horrible our broken immigration and enforcement system was. And all of California rose as one to condemn Donald Trump. Nobody cared, including Kate Steinle's own parents. Nobody really cared about her death from, because it's, it's so ingrained in the religious, the religious, the religiosity of modern California that the illegal immigrant is a sanctified human being is beyond criticism that even the illegal immigrant who murders an innocent person uh, cannot be criticized, and her own family can't bring themselves to say, this was an evil act and this man deserves to be punished. That, to me, is the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate example of pathological altruism. Come kill me, and I will still worship you. Or kill my daughter, and I will say that, no, we can't make any changes to our immigration policy, our crime policy, our public order policy. It's more important that people die on the streets than that we question any of these beliefs. You, you, you proceed from California, the warning that California offers the rest of the country to uh, a lengthy discussion of sort of the political theory of, of America, of the United States, the melting pot conception, whether, whether America has more of a propositional uh, identity or more, a more or a human or identity-based uh, identity. Let me ask a couple of specific questions. One thing you say deep in that section was that a lot of the social issues that uh, have been discussed and debated uh, between Democrats and Republicans they are actually less important to what has been going on in American politics than the areas in which Democrats and Republicans agreed on trade, on globalism, on China, some kind of neoliberal consensus there. How many Republican, I mean, Donald Trump intervened in, in this clearly. 
how many other Republicans are following Trump's course or are, are is most of the party still committed to that to that neoliberalism? Uh, well, the donor class is committed to it. I think the leadership class in the House and the Senate are committed to it. It's not clear where the rank and file are yet, but a lot of people are just in this mode of, well, he's, he's the president, he's a Republican, and I, and I definitely don't like the other guy, so I support Trump. Uh, we're in wait-and-see mode to see whether the party goes in the direction, in a Trumpist direction, which is what Chapter 8 is all about. And I don't make any predictions in Chapter 8. I just say it has to. It needs to go in this direction, or I think it will die. I certainly think it will deserve to die. Uh, if we try to go back to Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney Republicanism post-Trump, whenever post-Trump is, then the Republican Party has no purpose, and it will have no voting base. Um, and I know that there are a lot of people who want to take it back in that direction. And as yet, what we haven't seen is a, is a truly post-Trump but Trumpist emerging leadership class for the party. There's exceptions, but they're not enough yet to make me confident that the party will change. Um, we, we, we did a podcast with Frank Buckley on his book, The Republican Workers Party, that, that effort to, to redefine the party in, in, with, a, with a, different, a different population. Is that, do, do, do you see that well, moving? It has to, here's the thing, I, and, I'm, and I think Frank is right about the following. The Republicans, whether they realign their policy agenda or not, the only place they're going to get votes is from that type of voter. It's for voters from the demographic. They elected Trump, right? Uh, and in fact, that, w that had already been true before Trump. You know, Thomas Frank famously wrote What's the Matter with Kansas in 2004, and the thesis of that was um, why do these rural and not particularly affluent voters in the heartland consistently vote Republican when it's not in their economic interests? Somebody wrote, I, I forgot who, but it was kind of funny. I, in, in the magazine, you know, the counterpoint was, what's the matter with Central Park West? <laughs> it was like, why do all these rich liberals consistently vote Democrat over cultural issues, right? The Republicans had, and, and, and I, will, I will mention too, even though I know that they're enemies or at least opponents of mine, critics, let's say, Ross Douthat and Rehan Salon, who uh, not, it was a while ago now, at least maybe even a decade ago, wrote um, Grand New Party. And their point was Republicans have don't they they get votes from constituencies for to whom or for whom they do not deliver results. Right. They're consistently getting the votes of uh, heartland people, working class people, people without high school educations. And they consistently craft policies that favor banking, corporatism and, you know, coastal wealth concentration. Why do they do that? Well, you know, and then they proceed to sketch a policy agenda that would appeal to that constituency. As long as this culture war is waging, I think the, the workers, for lack of a better term, will either vote, they'll either vote Republican because they have no choice, or they just will be dispirited and they won't vote. So the Republican Party has to become this if it wants to live, whether it will actually, you know, develop the policy agenda and start to campaign the way Trump campaigned is another question. And I think that question is still open. And I think there are still a lot of Republicans who are saying, well, you know, Trump may be an epiphenomenon. We'll just we'll just wait him out and then we can go back to, to normal. Right. Uh, Michael Anton, thank you for joining us. Uh, the book we will have posted on on the website. There is much more. I, we, we, we really have so much more to talk about here about issues of civic nationalism, uh, as you put it. What is the fate of the melting pot? Uh, approach to to assimilation and multiculturalism. How did color? One, another issue. How did color blindness, the great ideal 
of 1960s liberalism. How did color blindness become a new species of racism? <laughs> there, there's much more to read uh, about that. Michael Anton, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.